Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Let's focus on our top story. That would be, of course, the tsunami of housing legislation we've been getting from Victoria the last couple of weeks. Yesterday, the B.C. government announced new rules that would further overrule municipal zoning. Housing Minister Ravi Kilo announced the new legislation that will, if passed, force some cities to allow towers of up to 20 stories near certain transit hubs. If passed, the legislation will mean cities must designate, designate uh, transit uh, development areas within 800 metres of rapid transit station and within 400 metres of a bus exchange. Those areas will include minimum heights and density requirements. The legislation would also remove minimum parking requirements in transit areas. Now, earlier... Uh, um, uh, this year, the government said developers will be allowed to replace a single-family home with up to six units in neighborhoods close to transit stops or up to four units um, on other lots as well. Uh, the province has also said secondary suites and laneway homes will be legalized province-wide. So a lot to take in. Joining me now to talk a little bit about all of this uh, housing conversation is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, welcome. Hello, Jazz. It truly is a tsunami of housing legislation. Never mind what the feds are saying or the municipal folks are saying for a moment. This is a lot. And if it goes ahead the way the government wants it to go ahead, this fundamentally reshapes towns, cities, communities, neighborhoods, full stop across this province. Yeah, I would say that I've not seen a legislative package uh, as far-reaching uh, as as what we're seeing here on housing. Uh, it really is. And again, we don't know how it's going to work necessarily. It's um, a bit of a roll of the dice by the NDP government. Uh, but it ha- you're right. I mean, it transforms what cities and municipalities are going to look like uh, in terms of housing and what neighborhoods are going to look like. And, you know, the aim is to build 130,000 units of housing over 10 years. Um, and But I tell you, it's... it's reaching over the heads of municipalities like we've never seen before in uh, in British Columbia, if not Canada. So it's a, it's very all-consuming. And it's interesting, it's all coming in, in the fall session, which usually is traditionally a lighter session when it comes to legislation. We usually see the major bills in the spring. And one of the things we picked up on this, these bills, I think there's four bills now, uh, still waiting for some details on some of the bills that will come through regulations set down by cabinet. Mm-hmm. And until we see those regulations associated with some of these, particularly when it comes to the short-term rental bill and some of the zo- the zoning bill, uh, changing the zoning rules, it's going to be hard to judge exactly what this is going to look like. Well, we've had um, Eric Woodward, uh, the mayor of the township of Langley, on the last two nights on this show um, and uh, we've also had uh, Dylan Kruger on and the minister on a couple of times the last two days as well. Now Dylan Kruger, Delta City Council, was supportive of it and uh, in the case, and what he said was that look for cities like Delta and Richmond which basically are fully built out this allows us to speed up um, the, the approval of housing, number one, and number two, we can start focusing on density. But when you speak to Eric Woodward, who is uh, the township of Langley mayor, they've got lots of land, like Surrey, that has not been developed yet. And they feel this sort of overarching big footing by government is going to cause a lot of trouble for their community. Take a listen to Eric Woodward here in regards to this conversation. 
It's the pre-zoning of land. So if we're required to pre-zone for single family uh, to be allowed to have six-unit apartment buildings by June, uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to transition that program on the same time frame. And it, the program on the pre-zoning of land combined with this ACC program, which I know the minister thinks addresses the issues, it does not address road and, and greenway dedications or how to secure park and school sites within developing areas like Langley or Surrey. And so, again, uh, you know, you, they're, they're taking this Vancouver approach where everything is built out and applying it in communities where it's not relevant and doesn't apply. It looks to me that there's going to be some challenges there with the Surreys and the Langleys, uh, while the Richmonds and the Deltas and Vancouver's will say, yes, that's not a bad idea, Minister, we like it. But in the outer burbs, it looks like there's some challenges there. Well, again, let's wait for the regulations. I think some of these things are, are going to be taken care of in regulations. Uh, there's going to be some exemptions on all, all sorts of levels. Uh, yesterday's bill about uh, building your transit was one of the more detailed and specific um, bills where we actually did get concrete information. Like, um, it's basically eight, within 800 meters of a SkyTrain station, for example. These new rules will kick in. So the, yesterday's bill was very specific, but some of the zoning changes uh, and the short-term rental requirements, we're still waiting for some regs, some regulations to say exactly how this is going to fit in individual municipalities. And even the, the manual that's going to go to municipalities is not going to be ready until, I think, December. So that's going to be a real... Um, roadmap for municipalities. And, you know, Mayor Woodward's been quite critical, and we'll see if some of his concerns are are met by some of these regs or some of the clarification that we have yet to get. Just because a bill was introduced in the House doesn't mean that's the end of it in terms of the impact and, and the rules on the ground that we're going to see going forward. Mm-hmm. Do you see this housing conversation, specifically this legislation, becoming an election issue uh, next year potentially, especially when you look at you know, uh, saying we've legalized secondary suites and laneway homes across this province, even with this for established neighborhoods. Do you see that turning into an election issue or even a generational well, debate? Hard to see what the election is going to turn on in the next year. It's still a year away, almost a year away, October, unless they go in the spring. Uh, right now, you know, poll after poll after poll shows the NDPs at a very high level of support, yet gets failing grades on issues such as housing or affordability. But that doesn't translate into changing voting patterns or, or changing voter intentions. So we'll see if that changes perhaps next fall. One thing I think the government's, I think by design, is giving the impression with this avalanche, as you call it, tsunami of legislation, it's certainly giving the impression that something's being done that wasn't done for years to address the affordability issue when it comes to housing. But will housing prices actually be down dramatically a year from now? I kind of doubt that, given the population surge we're going to see on a sustained basis for month after month after month, with the demand for housing that doesn't seem to be going away, even with the creation of more housing units, which, again, are going to take some time to build. So I don't think we're going to see a dramatic increase in housing in fact, the, own, the, the government's own documents, financial documents, the budget and the quarterly report, don't project a huge uptick in housing construction over the next year. This is going to take some time to play out. So maybe it's an election issue or maybe maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I just I get a lot of calls on uh, secondary suites and parking and, and uh, water and sewer and all those kinds of how It's going to turn right, everything Parking's a, a good and interesting one because the yesterday's bill, for example, prohibits municipalities from including massive amounts of parking in these transit uh, locations for, for uh, these towers that are going to be built in the transit and bus exchanges. You cannot have, Kalon, Ravi Kalon, the housing minister, referred to a, a project in Burnaby that was going to dig down 14 stories into the ground 
to have an underground parking uh, garage under a 20-story tower. So stuff like that's not going to be allowed. So where does everybody park? That's going to be an issue. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, uh, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking a little bit about uh, the tsunami of housing legislation we've had over the last couple of weeks from uh, Victoria. I want to move over to an issue generally we don't focus on too much on, on this program, which is just the the, the daily uh, comments you hear in question period. But yesterday I was watching question period and we had Bruce Bandman from um, MLA for Abbotsford South. Uh, he's a BC Conservative now, switching over from BC United, uh, demanding that Dr. Bonnie Henry be fired. Uh, And then yesterday, late yesterday on Twitter, the deputy leader of the Green Party uh, liked a post that compared Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, to a Nazi. Uh, generally not the type of conversation we have in this on this show or at the legislature in regards to uh, Nazis and, and COVID and Dr. Henry. Uh, Keith, what, what is going on over there? <laughs> Give us a sense of what, what you're hearing. Well, it's quite interesting. So the Green Party deputy leader, uh, Dr. Gandhi, who was basically uh, terminated last night by uh, leader Sonia Personal, mm. has been quite active on social media for some time. Um, uh, about Dr. Henry and Adrian Dix and really opposing the public health measures, not from an anti-vaccination point of view, but from a more of a um, wanting even more measures uh, when it comes to like mass mandates, for example. Um, uh, there's even in the past talk about school closures, more ventilation, that, that sort of thing. And he's been very critical, in fact, calling uh, Adrian Dix's names on, uh, on social media, calling him a charlatan eugenicist. Uh, eugenics, of course, a, a discredited belief of uh, the, in genetics and and hereditary traits to determine who gets to live in society. So he's insulting the health minister, and his, you're a deputy leader. You're not supposed to be really doing that. And then he compared, like the tweet comparing Dr. Henry to Dr. Joseph Mengele, the notorious yeah. angel of death and the Nazis. And then you've got the BC Conservative Party sort of taking the opposite tack, condemning Dr. Henry, more from an anti-vax point of view. From what I can determine, today they brought over the BC Conservatives brought over a bunch of people who said they're health professionals. Um, who uh, who refuse to be vaccinated and uh, say this is uh, somehow against the civil rights of everyone. So we had both extremes on display here, and the centerpiece was a mutual dislike of Dr. Bonnie Henry. So, um, but both I think are sort of playing to the fringes here because mm-hmm. uh, you know every bloody survey and poll we've seen for three years gives Dr. Henry and that public health officers pretty high marks of how we've handled. COVID-19. Um, and the vaccination rate is very high in BC. So society is, as a whole has bought into basically what's been going on for three years. But you had both parties on display in the last 24 hours taking sort of fringe positions. And as a result, the Greens are looking fairly embarrassed today. Sonia First and other leader had a pretty rough news conference explaining how this happened on her watch. And then Conservatives, um, you know, who sort of the shiny new toy in the legislature, but are taking fairly right-wing positions as as they sort of try to carve out their identity. Um, more positions that are more 
probably in keeping with the People's Party of Canada, Max Bernier, than a traditional conservative party. So uh, it's interesting. The BBC Conservatives want to go down that road and think they can grow the party that way, but I've seen no evidence that there's a huge number of British Columbians want to start embracing you know, uh, anti-vaccinations or relaxing public health measures to the point of uh, that some are advocating. But again, the two parties who are not the major parties on display today um, for various reasons and explains why the NDP and the BC United sort of just looked on in amazement of what transpired well, yesterday uh, and today. Amy, as you're saying with the BC Conservatives, they have an opportunity to uh, potentially be in opposition, um, official opposition after the next election judging by what the polls are showing. But this session, all you've seen is silliness, far-right positioning, as you say, People's Party type of uh, far-right-wing uh, uh, commentary, and dare I say MAGA, Make America Great Again, Donald Trump kind of stuff. And you sort of shake your head. It's like, wh- where have you folks been or where are you folks when the bulk of the Canadian population, or the BC population certainly, they're vaccinated, they're not really interested in this. If you're going to win votes, especially in urban areas like Metro Vancouver and Victoria, this is not the thing to, to win on at all. No, no, it's not a mainstream view. And, you know, the old saying in politics, you, you know, fish where the fish are and, that, you know, go where the voters are. And the voters, for the most part, hang around the political middle with a bit of shading to the left and the right. Yeah. And the, the key to forming government is, you know, you've got to broaden your appeal, appeal to as many people as possible. But I tell you, I just don't think those that constituency on either side, you know, both of the people who advocate really strong lockdown measures when it comes to mass mandates all the time and real uh, tough measures, which those days seem to be gone for most people in society, which is uh, puts the Greens, I think, a little out of step. And then you've got um, the other problem the Greens have is this. This has been going on a while on Twitter and social media from the guy who had been their deputy leader up until uh, up until uh, yesterday. And kudos to Rob Shaw of Czech TV, who's the one who, who basically discovered all these this stuff on social media, sent it to First and All, who subsequently um, uh, dismissed Dr. Gandhi from his position and ruled him out as a candidate. He was actually, ironically, going to face Adrian Dix in the new ride in Vancouver, Renfrew, as a Green Party candidate. He's no longer the candidate. And now you've also got Andrew Weaver, the former leader who put them on the map in the legislature, has denounced his old party on Twitter as being a fringe party bent on pursuing conspiracy theories. So uh, not the best of time for the Greens, I'm afraid. Usually silly season is election year. We're not there yet, and they're already getting going. There you go. Keith, thank you. All right. Take care. Joined by contributor Jerry Mary Judson. How are you? Oh, I'm fabulous. How are you, Jazz? I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. We'll take I'm a little it for tired, but I'll take it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm having my coffee, so it should be okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about um, Bright Nights um, in Stanley Park. Now, we had the mayor on uh, just a couple of days ago on the show live, uh, talking about the fact that the Stanley Park train is back after a couple of years. Of course, we we're not very happy about it. Uh, and so today, tickets went on sale, and every Everything went. How do we see this, Taylor Swift? Things were Taylor Swifty. Absolutely, yeah. things got Swifty. <laughs> Everybody's fighting over tickets. Well, you know, we can explain it to you. Here's a report from Global BC in regards to what happened. Some bad news for anyone wanting to ride the Stanley Park train this holiday season. 
Tickets for the long-awaited return of a Vancouver staple went on sale today, and less than two hours later, they were completely sold out. The Vancouver Park Board says more than 23,000 tickets were sold in just 90 minutes. Park Board says it appreciates the tremendous interest in the train and will be reviewing its ticket process. Only one locomotive and three carriages will be operating to start with this year. Work to repair the other engines is ongoing. Wow. That's a lot of tickets in 90 minutes. That's, well, I mean, it interest. also shows you how badly this file has been completely messed up by the previous council in allowing the disrepair of, of, of this well-loved train, this family tradition. Uh, and then, of course, with the mayor there and probably all of council, I remember looking at the press conference the other day, they're all there. Uh, they're all excited to make this big announcement. And it is still one locomotive and three carriages. And they said potentially they might be able to make add two more to that, potentially. I just think that we've gone without for for some years now. And I think that maybe it was a little bit quick. I actually have a clip here of our very own executive producer, Amy Beeman, who had herself a frustrating experience this morning. But it says 23,000 tickets were sold in under 90 minutes. I logged on at 9.24. I was in the queue for 38 minutes. So I was on before 10 a.m., which is 60 minutes, and there were no tickets. I could not get a single ticket for a single night for a single time. 90 minutes. Nuh-uh. This is worse than Taylor Swift. Look at I'm still sending things to my friends. Just one train running. Everybody was talking about it. All the moms groups. All we wanted to do was to go to Stanley Park and ride the train. And it doesn't look like we'll be doing that again this year. They oversold it. I mean, I shouldn't say they oversold it. Uh, the hype from, oh, my God, we're going to have a train, we're going to have a train, and this is what, what we got now. And it's we don't even have full capacity. So there was so much hype generated, and it was this big Ken Sim one-year anniversary thing that he did. It's a good thing that he did. It was beloved. It was missed. But now so many families are going to have to go back and watch the 2020 virtual experience, <laughs> which nothing wrong with that, I guess. And you can still Walk around the park, look at the lights. You just don't get to go on the choo-choo train. So bring your wagons, get the, you know, the things you can pull and put blankets in it. Get your hot cocoa for your kids. Maybe make it kind of fun. That's what I did when I was a little kid, having to do it in Calgary and walk around and look at the Christmas lights, you yeah, know? I mean, it's, it's I mean, like I said, there's one locomotive and three carriages. In that, as they said in that report, they may add two additional carriages, so there may be a bit more capacity. Uh, but uh, it's going to be another year before they get to full capacity, obviously. Ken Sim, the mayor, uh, was informed of the sold-out tickets and some of the challenges with the tickets, uh, and we spoke to him earlier today. Take a listen. Well, I knew it was going to be popular. I don't think uh, we expected to sell, th- what, 23,000 uh, uh, seats in 90 minutes. We're trying to fix the other ones as quickly as possible, but it was important for us to get something out there uh, that was workable and safe so people could enjoy it. And so that's what we did. More to come on the rest. We want as many people to enjoy the train as possible, and that's why our team's working incredibly hard uh, to get the other ones up and running. And, you know, um, you know, more to come on that. You know, what's really disappointing is this city, like Vancouver proper, just cannot 
get it right. Right? Like <laughs> Trying it's the, our best. <laughs> it's the train. Uh, there's no fireworks uh, during New Year's Eve. Like, you're the biggest city in the province. I'll tell you what, we're not doing our, our very best to get rid of this no fun city sort of moniker that we have. Uh, it's, and I think every every turn we're doing it a little too quick or a little just not, but there's, not enough. But even listening to the mayor, you just all relax. Like, it's not like there's a sense of urgency there. Uh, this is the best we could do. We apologize, or we should have done better, or maybe you shouldn't have announced it and wait till everything was ready that's, to go. That's what I think. And they've just, uh, you know, th- th- this is sort of the half measure. It's kind of there. It's not. And anyway, it's it's disappointing. It's disappointing. The, but right? if you did wind up getting a ticket or tickets for your family, just know that you are sitting. It's like an ingot of gold is these tickets to this train. They are so sought after. I've seen screenshots from the mom groups of moms just being like, I have have to take my, I guess my kids, they're just old enough to take them at 9.20 p.m. So I suppose I'll take the kids then. It's just, my it's God. so exclusive. It's you a, know what would be funny, but not funny mm-hmm. if they were being resold on StubHub next to Taylor oh Swift? Taylor Don't Swift. give anybody any ideas, Jazz. That I swear we're going to see it Christmas Eve, $3,000 for the choo-choo train. Somebody, go <laughs> can't make it. Just, just, I'll just charge you double or something Oh, gosh. Like There'll be resellers outside <laughs> the event on the day. I swear. It's hard out here. We're joined by Jerry Mayor Judson. We're going to talk a little bit about the cosmetics industry. Yes, the cosmetics industry is incredibly wasteful because you think about it, you get, say, a lipstick. It's mm-hmm. at least in a tube that is plastic. That you, it's, it's mixed materials that can be recycled. Mm-hmm. And then it's in a little box, which you might be able to recycle. And sometimes there's a plastic bag involved. So and then all of these, you know, billions and billions of products moving around the world, massive carbon footprint, all of that. It's the beauty industry is a big offender. But I found a, a company that is local. It's just on the island. It is called Elate Beauty. It's a sustainable beauty brand, again, based in Victoria, founded by a lady named Melody Reynolds about 10 years ago. And all of their products are made in Canada, right off the Mm. bat. Very small, small carbon footprint, exactly, compared to to what we'd see. 50% of them are made right on the island. Mm. And all of the packaging is refillable and recyclable. So even if you don't order the refills, you can at least recycle 100% of the products, which is so good. And Melody is a super interesting woman, and she's a leader in both beauty and sustainability spaces. And the story of how and why she started her company is incredible. So I started late with the idea that putting on makeup isn't going to change the world. However, you are the person who can change the world with the small choices that you make because they add up to global impact. I worked for a very large cosmetics company based in in Paris. And the self-worth piece of the beauty industry is the thing that really struck me. And I and I focused my own personal career on trying to make a difference with the individuals that I that I touched, you know, individuals whose makeup I was doing or, you know, in my role as, as a global educator for my company. But it was during that time that I recognized that the beauty company that I was working for didn't actually care. They, they didn't want people to only buy products that they needed. They wanted people to overconsume. And so I started to draw the correlation between, you know, that marketing piece that makes us feel bad so we buy 15 lipsticks that we don't need and the correlation of of the prolific waste in the beauty industry. It's almost known for waste. Each year, you know, there's a statistic that gets bandied around a lot, but it's true. There's 120 billion plastic packages that get made 
for the beauty industry specifically, many of those actually will be made into product that never even gets used. It never gets sold. It oh just gets God. thrown directly into the landfill. And so I brought it up at a, at a meeting in my company. And this is a place where, you know, I have to take you back to like 2006, where I was the only woman in the room at a beauty company. I remember saying like, hey, I have an idea about this product and, and what we should be saying to our customers to make them feel good. And I remember my boss looked at me like I had two heads and he was like, uh, no, you know, furthermore, no one actually cares what you think. You're here because you, we have to have a woman at the table. That really was the catalyst. And I realized that someone's got to do something. And I guess that someone is me. I chose a career that I thought would be really joyful because of that beautiful power that the beauty industry has to make people feel that joy. And all it did was make me feel bad. And so I, I did the opposite. I, I just, I only did things that brought me joy. And one of the things that I decided to do was I, I started taking make your own skincare classes. And the more knowledge that I gained about making products, the more I realized that anybody could do this. You, you just have to figure it out. And so, you know, I turned to my partner at that time and I said, I think, I think I want to do this. And he said, okay, let's do it. And so we took our collective savings and um, I sunk it into research and development. And I started making lipsticks in my kitchen. Then we launched in November of 2014. And I don't make it in my kitchen anymore. I promise. We focused on creating high performing products that are housed in sustainable and reusable and refillable packaging. That's really important. I also am really strong on the values of B Corps or benefit corporations. We actually became certified as a B Corp in 2019. We were the first cosmetic company in Canada to do so. We balance people, planet and profit. That means that we have a high focus on environmental achievements, making sure that we can achieve those targets so that our products are not just neutral for the world, but actually good for the world. And the key piece that we always still run on is that you are perfect, whole, and complete just as you are. That if you feel the need to adorn yourself with makeup, we want to make sure that you feel great, that you feel empowered, and that you feel joy. And my personal mission is to turn beauty consumers into beauty citizens. You know, consumers consume. That's what we do, right? We gobble things up. Citizens actually are more intentional about the things that they purchase. They use them up until they're gone. They use their voices to talk about what's right and what's not. And the companies that support citizens like mine are the ones that are changing the world and are changing the landscape of business for better. There's a portion of your profits, right, that you donate yeah. to environmental causes. We actually plant trees with every order that comes through. Um, and every order that comes through is actually fulfilled here in our Victoria headquarters. And then we also donate 1% to social or human causes. That's something that's really important to me as well. I you know, I have a lot of personal relationships with the Victoria Women Transitions House, which is um, our, our women's shelter here on the island. But we've also partnered with Plan International, um, the IRSSS, um, Rainbow Refugee is another one of our favorite partners. So yeah, we, we generally, once a quarter, we sit down as a team and decide, you know, who we want to support for the next little while. And then all of those funds are distributed to those organizations well, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Melody, for uh, for taking some time to chat with me today. It's been an absolute delight. This is the most heartwarming Aww. chat I've had in quite some time. <laughs> Aww, thank you. Of course. I'm just so delighted that we got to connect. What's amazing uh, about that conversation is that uh, the business was set up in Victoria. Yes. Right? Yeah. You think cosmetics, you think either L.A. or New York or generally Europe, right? Mm -hmm. 
uh, or some low cost area, right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, we're keeping it hyper local and you know reducing that carbon footprint, which is like that's just so impressive. I was sitting there nodding. I was like, oh my goodness, this is cool. Well, the fact that all time, well, we just took our savings and we just just. Just did it. That's such a supportive partnership. Just well, that's I a su- that's a sign it. of a true entrepreneur too. Where 100%. You, if you believe it, you, and, and there's no guarantee, but you take the risk and you're using uh, your savings uh, to take that risk. And and sit, like I said, sitting in Victoria to do a cosmetics business, right? Good for good for her. Good for her. And if yeah. you want, it's uh, elatebeauty.com. If you want to get some reusable, refillable mascara and whatnot, products are pretty elate? cool. Elate. E L A T E. Beauty.com. EliteBeauty.com. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. As we continue with our series, The Next Million, the series airs every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million and is expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. How do we accommodate the, these new residents and how do, we, uh, how do we work, live and play in a region with a million more people? Well, recently we looked at our shortage of industrial land here in Vancouver. We also were joined by former BC Premier Christy Clark as we looked at how we should govern the region with a million more people. We also looked at food production and food security in the context of a region that is adding more and more people. Uh, well, today's topic uh, will focus on construction trades uh, and building, uh, which is incredibly relevant considering we've had a tsunami of housing legislation introduced in our province in the past couple of weeks. There is no doubt the transition to a zero carbon economy will generate millions of jobs in the building sector in the next 30 years. Uh, think new green buildings, zero carbon retrofit its electricity supply, the creation of district energy systems and construction of new transit and vital bridges and tunnels. Will we have enough people to actually build all that infrastructure? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the next mil- million and the impact on construction and the building trades is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Chris, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jess. Thanks Good afternoon. Uh, as I was saying, a tsunami of housing legislation announced by the provincial government uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, we still have eight infrastructure. One only has to go through the Massey Tunnel, uh, like I do every day, and a variety of other um, uh, buildings and hospitals that need to be replaced. I guess the first question for me is, do we actually have enough tradespeople to build all that needs to be built in this province moving forward? Well, we have, a, we have a shortage of people in our economy generally. And if you think about what happened in British Columbia last year, for the first time ever, uh, more people died than were born. So forgetting immigration and, and uh, temporary foreign workers. So more people died last year than actually born. born yeah. So first time. Yeah, first time ever. Okay. And so our population isn't growing enough. So we need immigration. So there's, there, so, so there's this pent-up shortage of skilled trades in construction. And if you look at this year, we will take in, Canada will take in about 465,000 new immigrants, but only 2% of them are going to go into the construction trades. So that's about 9,000 people. We started off the year across Canada with a demand for about 80,000 job vacancies in the trades in Canada. So we're doing a very poor job of looking at our economy, assessing the skills gaps, and whether that's doctors, nurses, teachers, Trade, uh, skilled tradespeople, and then looking at our immigration system to, to bring in the right people to fill to fill those gaps in our economy. We're, we're doing a very poor job of that, so that's part of the problem. Okay. Uh, so, so, so okay, the, the demographics I'm getting in regards to uh, the, the amount of people that are coming to this country, there's not enough of them in trades, uh, but in regards to, so that's one. So in regards to actually building these houses, 
you're you're saying we're not going to be able to do it just based on present ten, trends right now in regards to the numbers that we have at this moment. So if you think of what we're building right now, we're in the middle of a national housing crisis. Of of of, of there are massive imbalances in in the housing market in major centers. We're living in Vancouver, so it's it's most pronounced here, but every major center across the country. And so if you think about the supply that we bring onto the market mm-hmm. in 1972, Canada had a population of 22 million people. And we built 230,000 new homes. 50 years later, in 2022, with a population of about 40 million people, we actually built fewer homes. We built about 220,000 homes, new homes last year that came onto the market. And this year we will build fewer still. So there's a lot of announcements and there is a lot of focus, but we have not been, for the last 50 years, we have been unable to move the needle on supply. And until we bring more supply onto the market, mm-hmm. we are not going to put a dent in affordability. And, and it's so challenging that the Canadian uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation came out and said, if we're going to meet current demand, every single year between now and 2030, we have to build about 800,000 new homes. That's nearly four times what we're able to build on, uh, put onto the market right now. So we, this is a national crisis, and the feds in the province uh, do a lot of finger pointing and a lot of talking about who's responsible. Um, but primarily, the chickens come home to roost at City Hall, mm-hmm. and that's where the first-time home buyer is hurt the most because the rules, regulations, taxes, the, the length of time it takes to permit and approve projects um, and it's where we have a very, very significant challenge. So when someone like yourself who has, you know, speak, represents a huge body of workers, um, sees announcements from a provincial minister, in this case, Ravi Kalo, the housing minister, you see the federal ministers coming out here. I've had just the immigration minister here uh, just, I think, twice in the last month to come on this show. Um, we had a minister who was about to make an announcement here, but then because they're cutting the GST for, 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 for homes, uh, and then it got annoyed because the municipal politicians or regional politicians said, well, we're going to increase the development cost charges. Um, and which is to justify, as they say, growth has to pay for growth. Mm-hmm. So what is the core issue here? It seems to me the federal government's woken up to all this, that we do have a housing crisis. The provincial government says we get it, and they certainly have introduced legislation. Ken Sims been on this program. We're going to you know, push for greater density in single-family lots. I think he gets it. So what, 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 where is the bottleneck? Where is the problem in your mind in regards to getting to that point where we can actually start building that supply that you speak of? Well, you know, everyone's talking a good game, but there's very little collaboration. And this is a national crisis, and they should be treating it as such, and they're not. So you mentioned the federal government. The federal government came out recently and said they're going to uh, remove the GST on purpose-built rental. That's great. The industry's been been, uh, wanting that for many, many Mm -hmm. years. But a few months ago, a different minister in the federal government came out and said, well, to meet clean emission standards, uh, we're going to have to start building homes differently. So by 2030, homes are going to have to be more energy efficient. Uh, the homes built in 2030 compared to 2019, to the extent that the Canadian home builders said that, that those changes in COBE will add 8% to the cost of new homes built in 2030. So one minister is removing 5% in GST. Another minister is imposing costs that will increase the, the cost of housing by 8%. It's left hand, right hand. Uh, and that's within one level of government. Then you start crossing over to you know, the, the federal government, the province, and, and, uh, and city hall. Um, I go to a lot of public hearings for lots of different projects, whether they're housing or expansion of, of employment 
employment lands, industrial lands, and jazz at every single public hearing. You'll have 60, 80, 100 speakers coming out, and there's two or three of us saying, we need to build this, and we need to build it now, Mm -hmm. and everybody else is lined up to say no. And the reasons, are, are, there's a list as, as long as your arm about why people say no. It's, it's not in this neighborhood. It's too high. There's too many of them. It'll be, it, there'll be more traffic. There'll be more noise. So part of the, part of the challenge is we have to ex- accept density. Our population in Canada expanded by 1.2 million people in the last 12 months. That's a record. Our, our population has not expanded by that much since the 1950s. Um, and these people have to live somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, we've got such a massive imbalance. Unless we start ho- ho- making wholesale changes in the way we appro- approach getting supply into the market, we are not going to put a dent in affordability. Our guest is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association. We're talking about lofty housing goals and announcements and the fundamental reality that we aren't building enough. And great numbers here from Chris uh, in regards to the challenges that we actually need to be building 800,000 homes a year nationally in this country. And we're hitting about 219, 220,000, which still does not hit uh, our numbers in the early 1970s. How about that? Uh, Chris, one question before we go to our callers. Uh, is there a problem in regards to how we train our people? I mean, is it still a challenge where people would rather go to get an arts degree rather than think, maybe I should go into the trades? Because based on what you're saying, I'd be telling my son right now, you, better, yeah. you should be thinking about you know, being a plumber, or a pipe fitter, yeah. or electrician. I mean, one would argue that those jobs are going to be in high demand for decades. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. And so the short answer is no, we're not, we're not presenting constru- a career in the trades as a career choice for young people if you want to work with technology. There's more technology being used today in, in, in the trades than there ever has been. And, and about $5 billion a year is being invested in North America in applications related to construction. So we're, we're designing and building uh, buildings a lot differently in terms of the use of technology. It's an entrepreneurial story. I guarantee you, if a young person says to a counselor in high school, I want to be a business person, I want to own my own business, and, and so how do I do that? The counselor's going to say, go to UBC, go to SFU, go to mm-hmm. UVic, and you know, study accounting or business and then go mm-hmm. get into business. What they should be saying is go to a technical school, learn a trade, get some experience, and start a business. If you drive by any construction site in this province, you're going to see construction signs, and the names on those signs, more often than not, are family names, partners, mm-hmm. individuals who took a risk, started a business, building communities, building legacies. What could be more exciting than that? And that's the story we need to tell high school kids. Hmm, interesting. All right, well, let's go to the open line. Let's go to uh, Dave in Fanny Bay. Hi, Dave. Uh, thanks, Jazz. Um, you know, on the, the affordability side, uh, I think it's time to liberate a bunch of these empty lots that have pe- people have been speculating on for decades. Hmm. And there's been really no penalty for holding properties. Uh, Kevin Falcon, uh, you might recall, dismissed the empty land tax. So I looked it up, and it's half of 1% of the assessed value. And the example I brought up before was a, a half million dollar lot next door to me. Mm-hmm. The guy wants to, now he's trying to sell it for six hundred thousand. So half of one percent is twenty five hundred dollars a year, and he's trying to make a hundred thousand dollar profit. And I'm sure he's actually only paying, uh, you know, probably fifteen hundred dollars a year on it because it's the assessed value. 
So I'd like to ask Chris, you know, is it time that we put an empty land tax and so these these parcels are liquidated and family businesses can go and build a house on them and, and individuals can as well? Dave, thanks for your call. I mean, it, it's hard to, we're not legislators, but I get your question, Dave. It's a good one. Um, I mean, there's a lot of these rules that perhaps need to be updated, right? Yeah, we, we um, listen, we've got a shortage of land, of buildable land. We've got mountains on one side, we've got the ocean, we've got the agricultural land reserve. Yeah. So land is at a premium in the lower mainland. That's part of the affordability problem. So that's why density is so important. And that's why building faster is so important. It should not take as long to per, to uh, approve and permit a project as it does to build it. Mm-hmm. Like we've got to move faster. And we've got to take things out of City Hall. Like think of this, if you, if you wanted to... Um, you know, add a deck onto your uh, onto your home. Mm-hmm. You have to go into city hall. That's kind of like saying I need, I'm going to go get my car tuned up, but before I go to the to the mechanic, I got to go to city hall to get a piece of paper, and then go to the mechanic. Mm-hmm. We should be taking a lot of that outside of city hall, and we shouldn't have every single. We should be relying more on expert engineers and consultants. Um, to stamp drawings, and once you've got that stamped and certified by a professional, mm-hmm. go build it. Rather than having that all reviewed by, you know, city city hall is under yeah. they're under significant pressure in terms of their human resources capabilities. Take it out of city hall. I'm curious, Chris. Uh just in regards to these businesses, these I mean, people who build our homes are probably going to be the private sector. You still have to have a strong economy to build uh, in the next 25 years. And what do you see in, in regards to even now, in regards to where the economy is and what needing the next five years, we're going to have to build a lot of houses. Where do you see the economy just in regards to competitiveness and productivity, all of that? Well, we have, we've got a big productivity and, and innovation challenge in Canada. So if you think of for every dollar that an American business invests in people, technology, training, mm-hmm. those essential ingredients to raise incomes and standards of living, a Canadian business invests about 53 cents. And so that's starting to show up in our standard of living. So if you look at the per capita income, the income per person in British Columbia, mm-hmm. it's about $57,000. If you rank that against the 50 U.S. states, B.C. ranks number 46. Wow. Sort of like we're right there with Tennessee, Alabama, and Louisiana. But a better healthcare system. Or that, that's what we yeah. tell ourselves. <laughs> that's what we tell. But we're actually, remember, we're sending 5,000 cancer patients every year now yeah. down to uh, clinics in Bellingham <laughs> yeah. because uh, we, we don't have the capacity. So, so that is, that's, a, that's a real concern. It really starts with economic literacy, yeah. people understanding where wealth is created. So from February 20, not, uh, 2020 to now, to about now, we've created about 114,000 new jobs in British Columbia. Yeah. 94% of them are government jobs. 94%, 104,000. Government broadly defined as government, civil service, yeah. uh, you know, the public that, sector. That can't, the, the math doesn't work because someone's got to pay for that. It's not sustainable. And we've got to get to a point where people understand what drives risk, uh, opportunity, wealth creation, entrepreneurship. We should be celebrating that and, and helping scale up businesses and to, to ensure that we've got a strong economy going forward. Chris, we've run out of time. Thank you. Great. Thank you. World wine production is expected to fall to its lowest level in 60 years uh, in 2023 uh, due to poor harvests in the Southern Hemisphere and in some major European countries. In the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, Argentina, Chile, South Africa and Brazil recorded year-over-year reduction in wine production between 10 and 30%. In the Northern Hemisphere, uh, Italy, Spain and Greece are the countries that suffered the most from bad uh, climactic conditions during the growing season. Italian 
Italian wine production is expected to drop by 12%. The tumble means Italy will lose its position as the world's largest wine producer, with France set to reclaim the number one spot for the first time in nine years. Now, drought hit Spain, kept its position as the third largest wine producer, despite its production set to fall to the lowest in the last 20 years, down 14%. Uh, uh, from this year to last year, and down 19% over the past five years. U.S. wine output, the world's fourth largest, is expected to increase actually by 12% from 2022. Thankfully, cool temperatures and heavy winter rains in the Napa and Sonoma regions brought much-needed moisture to the vines after several years of drought. We'll have more on B.C.'s wine production after uh, the 5 o'clock news. What, at this point, uh, is the challenge here, though? When you look at challenges uh, in the Southern Hemisphere uh, and in Europe as well, Uh, What all this means is, of course, climate change and the impact it's having on the wine industry. But does it stop there? What about other crops and even our ability to grow more food for a growing world population? Joining me now is a man who has followed this issue very closely. Uh, Peter Dillon is the CEO of the Richbury Group of Companies. It's an agribusiness enterprise which uh, operates here in B.C., and in Quebec, the Richberry Group consists of cranberry companies, which uh, combined are one of Ocean Spray Cranberry's largest shareholders and suppliers. Uh, Mr. Dillon is currently chairman of the board of directors at Ocean Spray. In 2019, Peter Dillon headed up the province's Food Security Task Force, which provides advice on how we can help grow more food and more jobs in BC's agriculture sector. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jess. Good to be with you. Uh, your thoughts on world wine output falling to the lowest in 60 years. Uh, what did you think when you heard that news? Yeah, Jess, uh, I, I read that uh, just a couple of days ago. I, I'm not surprised because what we're seeing with climate change is how it's affecting crops like grapes and, and other crops as well. The production uh, globally is dropping and uh, it didn't come as a surprise to me. Um, when you say you're not surprised, so you, you're you're saying that this this will be impacting other crops or potentially other crops in, in the years ahead as well. Yeah, Jess. Just a few years ago, um, you know, a lot of the food companies started seeing the decline of food production, not just in North America but uh, globally. In fact, if you look at Europe, uh, a lot of crops this year didn't get harvested because of the heat that was going on there and uh, the, the fruit or the vegetables just ended up you know, being cooked on the plant. You've, saw, you've seen now in, in India as well, the ban of any export of rice. Uh, India is one of the largest, if not the largest exporter of rice and they're going through tremendous droughts as well. And now India has said we're closing our borders for this type of food export and, and others as well because we need to feed our own country. No, so I think really today mm-hmm. the, the, the conversation around the resilience of your food security is really in question. Uh, in the past, uh, we've always had some sort of conversation like this, but it, it's always been, the issue has been dealt with, with a growing population, how are we going to feed the uh, feed folks? And our population is around 8 billion people, and it's expected to peak around 10 or 11 billion by the end of the century. Uh, and many have said it'll, it'll be dropping after that. But any time we've had an increase in population, the food industry has been able to address it through um, science and agricultural product, uh, practices, which have actually meant greater food production. What you're telling me for the first time, we not may not be able to address the issue of a growing population with greater production. Yeah, it really concerns me, Jas. If we continue to do things the way we're doing it, we are going to 
uh, end up in a global food crisis. So you mentioned science, innovation, technology. These are the solutions and the answers that are available to us, and we need to act today. We need to act now. There should be a call for action uh, because we don't want to replicate what happened to the housing crisis in Canada. Let's not solve it in the moment. Let's solve it now because if you look at the evidence, the evidence is leading us there. So uh, you were saying food companies are sort of seeing this. Are they getting together, talking amongst themselves? Do they have potential solutions in regards to how we deal with this in the years ahead? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, um, I was at a food conference made up of big food companies a few years ago, and that was where everyone started acknowledging that the production uh, of, of food in, in the conventional way was on a decline because of climate change. It wasn't because of uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, or what, it wasn't because of supply chain. It was really now the number one thing that's affecting food production is climate change. And the recognition of that uh, made some of these competitors come together and say, listen, we need to solve this. We need to solve this together. And so let's let's start investing together around technology. First time I've ever seen in a room competitors saying, you know, this is not your problem. This is not my problem. This is our problem. And now let's put our minds together and start thinking about how we're going to get out of this. We're speaking to Peter Dillman, Dillon, who's a chairman of Ocean Spray. We're talking about the fact that the world wine production is expected to fall to its lowest level in 60 years uh, this year due to poor harvest in the Southern Hemisphere and in some major European countries. In the Southern Hemisphere, uh, wine production, depending on the country, from Australia, Argentina, Chile, South Africa, wine production is down anywhere from 10 to 30%. In Italy, wine production is down 12% to the point where Italy will lose its position as the world's largest wine producer. Uh, France will reclaim the number one spot for the first time uh, in nine years. Uh, Spain has also been hit. They've actually had a 19% drop on average over the last five years in their country as well. Um, and of course, all of that comes down to the impact of climate change, that which is have, it's having on the wine industry. But uh, Mr. Dillon and I have been also been talking about um, the impact of climate change and on the global food production as well. Now, Peter, this impacting grapes now, we've been talking a little bit about that. It's going to impact other types of food as well. So my question to you is, what is the answer? When you say technology, is it the case of perhaps investing more in vertical farming? What kinds of things would you like to see here in BC to address these challenges? So just, you know, talking about other crops, we saw what happened to lettuce. Uh, California is running out of water. It's going to lose about a million acres of uh, farm production by the end of this decade because uh, the state is running out of water. And, you know, we talked about India, but we're talking about one of the sources of our food production supply in Canada is California. That's a problem. So what do I see? What do I see? Where I see the opportunities? Indoor agriculture. We really need to start thinking about growing things differently, growing it in the communities where people are, having the processing facilities there, and, and starting to look at and creating a resilient food system. Will the politics of BC allow that? And what I mean by that is, we, we had uh, Bridget Anderson uh, with the Metro Vancouver Board of Trade saying that we have a shortage of, of industrial land. It's a crisis. In fact, we've lost, I think, is 6,500 jobs already directly to Calgary and Alberta because we don't have en- en- enough industrial land or it's not being made available fast enough. Very, few, very little of our land is industrial land already, and it's tough with our limited land in this area. 
But when you look at, let's say, growing indoors, is our pol- or like our politics there where we can have that conversation potentially of putting processing plants, cleaning plants on ALR land, in and around ALR land, because one would assume that's where we need to head. Well, I think you have to ask yourself, what's the problem you're solving for? And if the problem we're solving for is food security, having a resilient food system, you know, uh, food security, in my mind, starts at the farm and it ends at the shelf where almost 100% of the consumers buy their food. And between the farm and the shelf, we need to make sure everything is running the way it needs to run so we can always have a reliable source of food that hits the shelves at affordable prices. Not to see the inflation that we are seeing today where families are having a hard time even you know, going to the grocery store and purchasing food. We need, we need to fix the system from the farm to the shelf. Uh, I, I've already, I remember I interviewed the former Premier of Alberta, uh, Jason Kenney, and uh, we were talking about a variety of issues around politics, but I actually happened to bring up the issue of indoor farming, and he got very excited because he wanted to talk about it. Uh, they seem to be moving further ahead, or at least quickly uh, in regards to this. Uh, where are we in your mind? Are we moving just as fast, or, or are we behind? And when I look at countries like the, ne- the areas like Netherlands, they're world's food superpowers. Like, wh- Where do we go from here? Like, Are we even competitive in the Canadian market in regards to indoor growing and that type of thing? Yeah, so Josh, you know, the, the whole premise of indoor growing is to grow a lot more on a lot less, where you're using 0.01% of the water that you would use in the conventional sense. So how are we doing in BC? We should and we could uh, and we must move faster than we are today. Um, when you look at uh, wine, this is just one issue, and, I, and, and it was saying that um, it, you know a, lot, a huge impact on the southern hemisphere here, Australia, Argentina, Chile, South Africa, uh, even places like Brazil have been impacted. I think in Greece there was a 45% reduction uh, in the amount of grapes that are generally produced from uh, 2023 to 2022. Um, the core of sort of food stock that we need um, like, is this a question of a one-off at this particular point, or do you think this is going to be the new normal moving forward? Because some would argue, look, it's a bad year, crops have bad years, it's nothing nor, nothing out of the blue. You're saying that this is going to be consistently a thing that we're going to have to deal with on a year-on-year basis. Exactly. I mean, we're look, who would have thought that Maui would burn the way it did? We're seeing the earth on fire right now. And what are the implications? The implications are huge, certainly around food supply. You know, the, we're, we're seeing production dropping because the farmers and the farms are not used to the changes that we're seeing today. And, you know, you could say this is a, you know, a one-off, but it's really not, Jas. We're seeing production dropping. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, where are those opportunities? And we do. Like, and there's no doubt. We need to continue to keep the conventional system going. But, you know, as we see populations increasing, the way they're increasing and the speed they're increasing, we need to bowl, have a bolt on. We need to think about having an alternative food system uh, with the conventional system if we're going to feed people in the world. Peter, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Josh.
We were speaking to Peter Dillon, who was the chairman of Ocean Spray. Uh, we were talking about world wine production, uh, which is expected to fall to its lowest level in 60 years uh, this year due to a poor harvest in the Southern Hemisphere and some European countries. Uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, Argentina, Chile, South Africa and Brazil recorded year-over-year reduction in wine production anywhere between 10 and 30%. Italian wine production is expected to drop by about 12%. Uh, that tumble actually means that Italy will lose its position as the world's largest wine producer, with France set to reclaim that number one spot for the first time uh, in nine years. Now, not all is bad. Spain isn't doing very well either. But in the United States, uh, thanks to cool temperatures and heavy winter rains in Napa and Sonoma regions, um, it's expected wine output from the United States would be up by about 12% compared uh, to 20. 22. But uh, Mr. Dillon and I, when we talked, really talked about climate change, not just its impact on the wine industry, but the broader impact it's going to have on food production and now how we need to be more climate resilient when it comes to food security and food here in British Columbia. Take a listen to his comments. What we're seeing with climate change is how it's affecting crops like grapes and other crops as well. The production globally is dropping. And in fact, if you look at Europe, a lot of crops this year didn't get harvested because of the heat that was going on there and uh, the the fruit or the vegetables just ended up you know being cooked on the plant you've you've seen now in in India as well the ban of any export of rice Uh, India is one of the largest not the largest exporter of rice and they're going through tremendous droughts as well and now the, the, the conversation around the resilience of your food security is really in question. That was uh, Peter Dillon who joined us at 4.30 to talk about this issue. But you can't talk about wine and not think about the Okanagan and our own wine industry. Joining me now to talk a little bit about climate change and the wine industry here uh, in British Columbia is Miles Proden. He's president and CEO of the Wine Growers of British Columbia. Miles, thank you for joining us once again. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, your thoughts, first and foremost, uh, the, the, the news about world wine, produ- wine production expected to fall to its lowest level in 60 years here in 2023. Uh, were you expecting that? Uh, well, I can say, given what we're seeing here in BC, I, I'm not surprised. Um, I also note, though, that uh, France, for instance, has uh, got an oversupply. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very regional worldwide. And in fact, uh, the French government are paying uh, wine growers, uh, grape growers in France to actually tear out vines. So uh, it, there's a huge imbalance just because the way of climate change is shifting uh, what can grow well and where. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're certainly seeing that here in BC uh, with uh, grape growing. So for our audience, give us a snapshot of the industry today and now. What's it look like? Well, I can tell you that it is not good in terms of production. Uh, We've seen a steady decline in the amount of grapes we're able to take off of our planted vineyards. And we've seen that over the last uh, five or six years and had a good hard look at it to determine exactly what was causing that as best we could. And of course, uh, not to our surprise, climate change. And climate change uh, comes in all various forms and conditions uh, and a lot of terms people will be familiar with that probably weren't in the lexicon that long ago. Uh, Heat domes, atmospheric rivers, um, and the rest of it. Freeze events is what's really impacting us. But So we've seen a decline in in what we're able to produce uh, and actually harvest. And last year uh, was an exceptionally hard uh, winter where uh, we've lost 50% of our grapes this year. So that means 
winemakers are going to have 50% less grapes to make uh, wine with this year. That obviously is going to have the impact on, on the, uh, the, uh, the, the, on the viability of their business. Um, and the wildfires that we see in the summertime, do, does that have uh, an impact on the industry as well? Absolutely. Not necessarily on the grape growing. There is, mm-hmm. there is uh, a whole uh, aspect of smoke uh, impact and how does that smoke impact the actual grapes. Um, but really where that has the most direct effect is on tourism. Wineries uh, across BC, not just here in the Okanagan, may make the most value or the most profit from their wine when they sell it directly from the winery. Um, but when there are fires and uh, travel bans and uh, rock slides and uh, mm-hmm. all the other uh, all the other barriers to travel, uh, that's really preventing wineries from being able to sell their wine. And so, uh, uh, what wine we're able to produce, uh, not having access to the market again, just to, it just creates that perfect storm for. Uh, for a very, for uncertainty in, in the industry, uh, Mr. Dillon, in, in in our previous interview with him at four thirty, talked about the climate change and its impact on the broader food production uh, in 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 the world. I mean, in many ways, you know, the world has always, especially its farmers and growers, have always, whether it's through agricultural practices or through science, have been able to grow more and more food as the global population grows. And Mr. Dillon's core challenge here, he says, is that for the first time, we're having difficulty doing that uh and he used some examples india being a good example of you know where they've said we're not exporting rice because we're concerned that we may not have enough which of course sends shockwaves as a staple food uh, throughout the world and especially asia so as an industry as a wine industry what does that mean in regards to uh, the types of grapes you're growing i mean do you have to change the types of grapes you're growing or how do you deal with the issue of climate change because it's not going anywhere no, it's 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 a good point, and Mr. Dillon is correct. I mean, you know, the green revolution that uh, got us to sort of where we are today is uh, is maybe run its course, or maybe didn't consider at least uh, the conditions we're facing with climate change. And and the grape growing industry is is no different here in in, in BC. Um, but again, as you point out, it's growing, it's farming, um, and regardless of what you're farming, um, climate has has a direct impact. Mother Nature can be fickle and uh, it sure throws uh, curveballs out there. Listen, our, our wine industry in terms of grapes is not that old. I mean, we've been making, growing and making wine uh, in uh, the Okanagan at least for, you know, over 100 years. But it's only been in the last 35 years where we've really replanted uh, and put into place the grapes that have brought us the success we uh, have today. And that was really driven by the free trade agreement, which we learned we were going to have to really up our game in, in what, what plants we were planting and able to uh, take advantage of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we didn't know what we were doing. Um, we didn't have a lot of history of, uh, of a nipper grape and where to plant and, and, and exactly where and when uh, and what type. Uh, but now, 35 years later, we have that, uh, that knowledge. Um, we're seeing uh, a lot of those vines dying off, if not because of the cold weather and climate change, um, but just really because they weren't the right grape in the right place. So with that that background, with that data, and, and knowing what we know today, we have an opportunity to replant. But that's not cheap, and uh, we're going to need some government support to help us with that, and that's in fact what we're asking for today. So what are you looking for when you say government support? Is it direct assistance? Is it a longer-term um uh, sort of help in regards to helping this industry, you know, make those changes that may take five, six, seven, ten years to make that transition to uh, an industry that is able to deal with the issue with the issues in and around climate change. What kind of things are you looking for when it comes to help? Yeah, no, we need. We were asking uh, at least for some uh, some help with uh, the replant programs. I say. In- 
35 years ago when free trade came in, there were some, uh, there was a very good uh, provincial federal uh, program that helped us uh, to replant those, those plants. Hmm. And we're going to need to do that again. This is very much uh, caused by climate change and, and, and we need that support. You know, the grape industry and wine industry uh, is unique in terms of uh, the value add. It's the highest value add ag product that there is. Uh, and so that that's a tremendous contributor to the economy, but also uh, the tourism side of things, the spin-off, the economic impact, uh, especially in rural BC, is not insignificant. And um, the sort of the, the the destination that we built around wine tourism here in the province, and what that means again to sort of rural communities, um, is 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 real. And so um, we contribute to the economy, to taxes, to employment, and uh, and we need to make sure that we're viable for climate change because it is not going away. But fortunately, um, our growers are resilient and they're up for the task, and uh, we just need to make sure we've got, as I say, the right plant in the right place. Should we expect, my final question to you, and, and, and I don't, uh, I'm not going to hold you to the <laughs> exact number, but should we just be expecting to pay more for wine uh, come Christmas and into the new year? No, it's a fair question. Um, you, you listen, we know that uh, BC wine is not the cheapest op- opportunity for consumers. I mean, you walk into any liquor store around the province and uh, you see shelves full of uh, cheap foreign uh, you know, wine that's available. So we, we respect uh, that consumers have a choice and, uh, and, and we've been very reluctant to pass on even the costs of, uh, of making wine that we've had today. Um, you know, with inflation, we realize everyone has uh, inflation pressures. And so we just aren't willing to pass that along to consumers. They've been good to us here in BC getting us to where we are. And we support that. And uh, and we appreciate that. So even with low supply doesn't mean uh, that we're going to be uh, going up in price. Um, You know, things could turn around, uh, not instantly, but, uh, you know, over time. And we want to make sure that we're taking care of the the customers that have taken care of us to get get us to where we are today with fabulous 100% BC BQA wine. Miles, uh, really appreciate you making time for uh, for our audience today. It's a, it's a very big uh, issue and an existential challenge for, for farmers and for wine, uh, grape growers around the world. Really appreciate you making time for us today. As, as always, a pleasure for uh, joining you and I appreciate the interest. All Thank right. you. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.